Hi, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts answer questions and share real world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guests. Welcome, LDOT, Gotthelf, and Alex Hughes. Alex, LDOT, thanks for joining me today on Realty Speak. We're going to talk about everything you need to know about zoning to maximize value add on a potential opportunity or for a real estate asset already owned. Nice to be here, Bill. Thanks for having us. It's a real treat to be on the podcast, Bill. Before we get started, I'd like to share with our listeners just how accomplished you both are. Eldad, you're currently the Chief Land Use and Development Specialist in the Land Use and Zoning Group for the New York City Law Offices of Herrick Feinstein and an adjunct professor of urban planning at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture. At Herrick, you expertly guide commercial real estate owners, developers, and investors through every step of the development process, including zoning, land use, sustainable development, affordable housing, and facilitate the resolution of issues with the New York City Department of Buildings. Alex, you are the co-founder of Curve Architecture, You are a registered architect in New York, New Jersey, Florida, and Washington, D.C., a National Council of Architectural Registration Boards certified professional. You have designed and managed notable projects in residential multifamily, retail, and hospitality. And you have taught at Columbia University, the Pratt Institute, University of Pennsylvania, the Parsons New School for Design and the Architectural Technology School at the New York Polytechnic Institute. Super fantastic to have you both here together. Really looking forward to this. Thank you. Looking forward to it, Bill. You know, I know uh, you are, but before we get started, would you each first share a little bit about your professional journey and how you came to collaborate with each other? Eldad, why don't you tell us? So even though I do work at a law firm, I am not an attorney. I'm an urban planning professional. I have a master's in urban planning. After getting my master's degree, I went to work for a community development organization in Brooklyn, doing housing and planning for the organization and for the community. After that, I came to work at Herrick to do zoning and land use here at Herrick. And I left Herrick actually, after five and a half years doing uh, zoning and land use work here to work with a client to do development. I actually went to a developer and for about two and a half years, work doing real estate development, mostly in Upper Manhattan, a little bit in Chelsea and in uh, Jersey City, helped grow the developer, and then had the opportunity to come back to Herrick two and a half years later in a little bit of an expanded role. And now I've been back at Herrick uh, in my current role for about three years now. Uh, While working with the developer, I had the opportunity to work with an excellent architect, Alex Hughes. We collaborated on a couple of projects together. And we've been able to maintain that collaboration throughout uh, my transition back to Herrick. And now we continue to work on uh, new projects together. Alex, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I am trained as an architect, received my master's degree at Columbia University as well. 
I come from from a background of of architectural design and and designing you know multiple different types of project. In doing so, um, I joined forces with uh, the industrial designer Karim Rashid and worked on a, a number of projects, uh, multifamily residential projects, um, you know, from eight to twenty three stories in Manhattan, and learned the development process and the you know the zoning resolution and and the building code through the experience. Of, of working on on many of these projects over the years, and I was with Karim for for about six years, and we created a, a, a company to focus on architecture and development, uh, learning our lessons from our clients and learning how to develop from our clients. We also now uh, develop for ourselves, so we're we're actively purchasing land, developing it ourselves, you know, filing the necessary documents to achieve constructability, and um, both practices kind of go hand in hand, development and architecture. And I continue to work uh, with Eldad through the role of uh, owner's rep and uh, developer for several institutions. And, and um, we, we maintain a working relationship to this day. Thanks for sharing that with us, guys. Uh, you know, there are a lot of ways to apply what we're going to talk about today. When someone is looking at a building to begin with, they're looking at the numbers. But there's also the brick and mortar. There's the building. What can I do with this building? Can I expand this building? Can I change the land use? Can I change the zoning? Why don't we talk a little bit about that? First of all, what like what is zoning? It's a great question, right? We, we, we have, I don't know, a million buildings in, in, in New York City, and we have clients that come to us and say, I'm looking at a property or I have a property, and what can I do with it? And so we'll ask them to, to take a step back and say, we try to gather as much information about that property as possible. Uh, tell us what are the existing conditions today? And so that means the brick and mortar, how big, what's happening inside, what are the uses, is there a certificate of occupancy, which is critical in order, you know, other issues we can get into as we continue the discussion. Actually, can I, can I interrupt you for one second there? Sure. That you bring up certificate of op- occupancy and uh, like you say, we, we can talk about it later in the discussion, but just real quickly, I notice a lot of times the certificate of occupancy doesn't match what's actually happening at the building. Uh, you'll have a, a situation where a certificate of occupancy does not match uh, the use. That can be problematic if the use that you have in place is something that may not be permitted and you think you might be grandfathered. That That's a concern. Oftentimes, we'll also have a building that doesn't have a certificate of occupancy, even though the use might be legal or might be have been there for quite some time. That can also be a concern if you're trying to expand or convert the building. Alex? Yeah, many, many buildings in Manhattan do not have a certificate of occupancy because simply because there has been no significant alteration to the structure since before the certificates were issued. So what you'll find is I cards, you know, microfilm that show uh, older documents before the certificate of occupancies were 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 in use, and you can piece together a story of what the building's use was and present that to the building departments as an argument for what use you're trying to use in the future. But if, if we could take a step back, actually, um, the, the first thing that, that that's critical uh, when you're looking at a property is actually going to the right professionals, right? And that means someone like Alex or someone like myself, because what happens is there's a lot of faulty information out there that comes from you know rumors or brokers or a seller might tell you, oh, I promise you, you can get this done over here. And, and, and that becomes problematic because people will make investment decisions based on information that may not be entirely accurate 
or maybe you can do something that's promised, but it might take a lot longer and may not be exactly as of right. And so that becomes problematic. And so, so the information associated with, with zoning and land use is extraordinarily valuable and it has to be right. Otherwise, you can make extraordinarily foolish decisions. Let me add to what Eldad's saying because it's important. And I don't want to bash brokers in, in general, but a lot of brokers out there will tell you, you know, it's zone for X. So your FAR is, you know, Y and your buildable is Z, right? And and basically just to explain what this is for people who don't know, FAR is floor area ratio. It's a multiple of the lot size. So if you have a 10,000 square foot lot and your FAR is two, you can build 20,000 square feet. That is a very basic way to understand what your development rights are in terms of a multiple of the lot. The problem is it's a three-dimensional problem and a three-dimensional problem that typically needs to be analyzed by someone who understands the volume and the bulk of the building, which not necessarily matches the floor area ratio. So let me give you an example. That same 10 square foot, uh, 10,000 square foot lot, if it has an FAR of 10, you can build 100,000 square feet. Great. But it could be that in that zoning district, even though you're allowed that FAR, you could not go up that high because you have a height limit, or you have a setback from the street, or a setback on the rear yard, or the side yard, or many other factors that would limit you from achieving your maximum FAR. And the only way to know that is to do a study. And the accurate thing to do is is work with an architect or, or a land use consultant who can actually model this for you, and you can see for yourself what, what you can get out of the, the site. I mean, I would imagine that somebody that goes into the Department of Buildings and gets this information or looks it up online and makes an assumption that they can do things with this particular site will probably be more incorrect than correct. New York City's zoning regulations are extraordinarily complicated. And they, they never take away or almost never take away zoning regulations. They just add layers on top of layers. Uh, it makes it particularly difficult to look at a site. And if you don't have the experience to really be able to understand the zoning code and how that would apply to your site specifically. A lot of times something that can happen is that you'll have experience on one site and then you try to draw that same from that same experience and apply it to another site, but each site is different. Uh, the, the lot area is different, the shape is different, and there might be nuances from, from site to site that, uh, that might be missed by someone who doesn't have that experience. But, but Bill, you, you, you asked the question, what is zoning? And I think it's important to understand, right? So, so zoning generally regulates two things. It regulates use and it regulates bulk. Use means what can I do with the property? Residential, uh, restaurant, hospital, uh, industrial use, uh, any number of, of, of the potential uses that it regulates that, what can be done within the building, and it regulates bulk, which means how big of a building can I build and what is the shape of that building? Uh, so zoning regulates the, generally regulates those two uh, aspects of, of development, use and bulk. And the zoning resolution is written by the New York City Department of City Planning, but it's enforced by the New York City Department of Buildings. And so that, that creates a little bit of a, of, of a tension because uh, the zoning resolution is three volumes, it, it's extraordinarily long, it's extraordinarily dense, and so sometimes we have situations where uh, reasonable people can disagree about what certain aspects of the zoning resolution actually mean. And so you have to kind of parse the, the meaning, parse the interpretation, 
and the enforcer, the DOB, is not who wrote it. And so sometimes the DOB and the Department of City Planning talk to each other, but oftentimes uh, what we do is we will work with our clients to interpret the zoning resolution and, and work with the Department of Buildings to get the most favorable interpretation uh, possible. Let, let me let me add to what Eldad's saying with a very practical, straightforward case scenario, right? This happened to one of the buildings we're working on. The zoning said that we had to match the neighbor's setback from the street and at a maximum of 15 feet. So if that neighbor's setback four feet, we have to be at four feet. If it's setback at you know, 20 feet, we only have to be at 15. 15 is the max, right? And so what happened was the neighbor while we were getting our approvals, demolished his building um, and started building a new seven-story building. And that building was actually at a specific distance from from the street. And we're intended to match that. It would make sense. It's what we're supposed to do. But the building department, with their reviewing our zoning and they're reviewing the neighbor, they don't see that the building has been demolished. And they don't see that they just internally approved a new seven-story building that's 15 feet back from the street. So they won't give us the okay on our setback to match the neighbor in the future because they're not sure that it's there. So it becomes an internal debate with the examiners. We go to the site, we see that they've poured a foundation, we take a photograph, we measure it. I ask for a meeting with a deputy borough commissioner. He reviews the case, okays it because it, it's obvious, it makes common sense and it's, and it's approved. Um, that little you know, hiccup in the road can take an extra month when you're trying to get an approval because no one at the building department wants to take the responsibility of assigning your distance from the street on something that's future, you see? It's a very simple case of the DOB interpreting zoning when, when they don't have all the tools to do so, right? Um, I just wanted to throw that in because things like this happen. Uh, another really good example is uh, a lot that has five different op overlapping zoning districts. We have a lot that's 25 by 100, and it's on a diamond-shaped corner, and it has two different commercial overlays, one from the back, one from the front. It's in two different zoning districts. It's partially in, in an R5A and partially in an R71. And then it has layers on top because it has community borough districts, uh, community districts in the borough that, that have special rules. And very few people can go through and understand at the end of the day what you can build. It takes understanding these layers, modeling it, and you know, writing it out so that the building department visualizes it easily and understands and says, oh, okay, and you go through. We're very proud to have just gotten approval on, on that specific one. So on that specific one, do they uh, actually rezone the whole diamond-shaped site to one zoning, or do they leave it with the overlaps? They leave it with the overlap. There's no change to the zoning. And there's a specific chapter in the zoning resolution that tells you how to deal with these situations. You do math ratios that show areas of one versus another, and the larger one wins in certain categories. It defaults to the larger one. In other categories, it's a blended average of two. So for parking, it's a blended average of two. But for FAR, it's um, it's also a blended average. But for form factor, it becomes the bigger of the two. So you have to go through each one of these items, narrate it, show in the code where it is, and, and show to the building department the graphic 
and mathematical calculations of how you're, you're presenting this for them to understand it. That's a great example, Alex, of, of how complicated the zoning resolution can be. Because if you have a, a site on a corner that's a perfect rectangle with one zoning district, that in and of itself can be complicated. But if you have a site with multiple zoning districts and all kinds of issues and maybe an irregular shape, uh, it really creates a unique condition that needs to be analyzed specifically for that site. And if you don't have the right information, it can really lead you down a path of making a lot of mistakes. For example, you may think that on a specific site that has a split zoning condition, like you're describing, that you can apply the, the zoning district that, that, that covers the majority of the site over the entire site. And that may be the case unless you have an assemblage and you're creating a larger zoning lot and all of a sudden, it's not a historic condition that's already in place. What the city does is it views this as, an, as you trying to take advantage of the split condition, and it won't allow you to apply the, the, the zoning district that applies to the majority of your original lot over the entirety of the lot. You're going to be bound by having to apply the certain district to one part of the lot and the other district to the other part of the lot, which may end up creating a situation where you have a, a building with really significantly different bulk controls and ending up with a building that can look a little strange, which we you, you can see examples of those throughout the city. But if you find yourself in that situation, that's when you might want to consider doing something that is not as of right. You know what? I'm glad you said as of right, because what does as of right mean? I see that all the time. Right. So the concept of as of right is inc incredibly important to understand, uh, and it is particularly unique uh, to New York City. Uh, the majority of the United States does not have as of right zoning. As of right means if I de design my building to the zoning code and the building code, I will be getting a building permit. I will have the ability to build and I cannot be stopped, right? As long as you meet those, you still have to go through DOB review to make sure you meet the zoning code, to make sure you meet the building code, but no one can say, there's no discretionary approval. No city agency can say to you, you can't go forward and build this. Outside of New York City, even if you design to the code, you still have to go through either a planning board or a zoning commission, and they have the right, based on any number of criteria to say, no, you can't do that. In New York City, New York is so big, we can't allow ourselves to have every single development uh, go through some sort of discretionary approval. And so almost all development that happens in New York City is happens on an as-of-right basis. It still takes time to get your building permit. It still takes time to go through the DOB review process. But the as-of-right nature of development in New York City allows that project to go forward without having someone saying, yes, you can, or yes, you cannot do that. If I may add to that, in most of the world, you have a planning commission that is reviewing project case-by-case -case basis. So when you, when you present the project, they may allow you certain flexibility. They may allow you a couple extra floors if they like the color of your facade or they like the materials that they're using or the base of it because it fits in with the context of the neighborhood. In the five boroughs under the New York City zoning resolution, as long as you meet what's dictated in the zoning resolution. No one has any say beyond that in terms of the density, the unit count, the height, uh, the bulk, or the use of the building, as long as you're meeting that and obviously the building code beyond. The concept of as of right, as of right development is extraordinarily important because it allows you to build in a way that your neighbors or a community group or 
any kind of uh, political entity can't really stop the development, right? If you're building according to code and according to zoning, you can go forward and do that. That gives a real certainty to developers and it gives a certainty to lenders, which is critical in real estate development. Certainty is extraordinarily important and the as of right nature of development in New York City lends itself to uh, having that kind of certainty. So do you guys have an example of that? Absolutely. There was a there's a project I once worked on where the lot was extraordinarily deep and it was in more than one zoning district. It had been a vacant lot for many, many years and the community around it was was used to the nature of its vacancy. And when the developer came to construct a building, we decided that by pushing the building back and creating a front courtyard, the building could make better use of both zoning districts. It could be a slightly denser. In exchange, there was no zoning rule that forced us from from being at a certain distance from the street. We could go as far back as needed in order to, to create our courtyard. There was one particular neighbor who was very used to seeing this empty lot and was going to now see a building and um, did everything in that person's uh, power to stop the project and through several connections was able to um, have it audited which is very atypical it was audited for zoning the, you know the project was momentarily stopped while it was reviewed because the dob did not want to be responsible for permitting something that wasn't as of right they found after the audit that it was totally within the norm and it was permitted and that building stands today that's a great example of following the zoning, working within the allowance of the zoning. And, you know, even if it's opposed by anyone in the community, if it's zoned this way, you have the rights to build that way. So when something like that happens, and from the perspective of the developer, the owner of the property, uh, you, you're stalled your project. So now there's a cost of holding the property during this period of time when it's being audited. And there's also the additional costs for the professionals that are going to help them with this audit. So even in as of right, you have to be prepared for situations that might end up costing more than you thought. Well, in construction, you always have to be prepared for situations that cost more than you thought. I mean, from from excavating and pulling a foundation and finding water to, you know, your concrete being, you know, subpar. I mean, there's a thousand things that can go wrong in the nature of, of construction. What does the typical developer use as a percentage for contingency for a whole project to take all these unforeseen issues into consideration well it's it's hard to tell it depends on the budget of the project and and different people use different contingencies um there's contingencies for things that are higher risk than others ultimately i i believe that it's the gc's in terms of the construction cost to build in a contingency and present that to a developer so that he knows that this is a price that he's going into that will take care of certain contingencies development is is another aspect you know there's there's many things in terms of development that, that you should um budget for i'm not going to give particular advice on on you know general scope because there's so many different conditions but you know things can go wrong you can get sidewalk violations you can get um approvals can take longer than you think there's many things in in development that can stall a project in this case i don't think the zoning was the stalling of the project it was a particular neighbor that was opposed to it you have to warrant for that when you're putting a new building on a vacant lot it, it may or may not draw opposition to the community 
The point of as of right is that the city recognizes that as long as you're working within the existing zoning resolution, uh, the project should not be stopped for the zoning that you're presenting as long as you're complying. In planning school, we teach that uh, time is the enemy of the developer. When you think about opposition to projects, oftentimes the opposition doesn't have to be right and they don't have to win a, a legal case, but if they delay the project long enough, that might in and of itself be enough to kill the project. And so that's why uh, the beauty of uh, as of right and the certainty of it plays into the hands of developers and lenders. And to add to that, time-wise, right, from the point of view of the architect and from the point of view of the developer, my, my experience has been, you know, when I work with a developer that's very cash-heavy, not borrowing money, he or she's not borrowing money, they have the funds to, to wait out the project, they've bought the land at the right p- price, and they're going to profit from it no matter what. They take their time, and that time is taken to in- invest in the right professionals, the right drawings, the right agency approvals. So it's done right. So when they put the shovel in the ground, it goes as smoothly as possible. You know, Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright said, you know, I can put an eraser to it now, or I can put a sledgehammer to it later. What do you prefer? Many times you run into developers who, you know, they're borrowing heavy, heavily, they're paying very high interest rates, and time is their enemy because, they're, you know, they're, the bank is calling the shots. And so they need to know what they're getting into in terms of a timetable, in terms of the full process of approvals at the city with all the multiple agencies that are out there that you have to go through beyond just landmarks or beyond just the city planning commission. At the end of the day, the experienced developer will know how to build in contingency for time so that the project works. Right, but you you also uh, need to be worried about it. If your project is delayed, uh, the market may move during time, right? Uh, the, the planning and construction uh, of development projects in New York City can take years. As we all know, uh, the real estate market uh, moves relatively quickly. And so, uh, again, the, uh, in terms of having uh, loans out on the property, uh, loans out on construction and the market moving. Again, that's why time is is the enemy of the developer. Yes. If a developer buys a, a piece of property and they have as of right and they're going to build it as of right, how long should something like that take before they can put a shovel into the ground? Alex? It's a too general question for me to answer because there's buildings that could take two to three years of planning and there's buildings that may take a year of planning. There's buildings that are fast-tracked where you're submitting certain things and trying to gain time, and there's others that you wait until everything's ready. It's, it's too generic of a, of a question in Manhattan because you have 80-story buildings and you have four-story buildings, and so there's everything in between in terms of timing, timing and planning. Right. So obviously, the buildings that need less planning are going to be more towards that one year, and the ones that need more planning are going to be more towards that three-year plus your construction, and then your sellout. Uh, absolutely. And, and to add to that, what you need to understand is that anything in the city that's not an alteration type two, let's say, where you're just renovating the existing interior, you're not really changing the use at all. Anytime you're changing the occupancy or the use of a building or increasing it at all in any way, shape, or form, you're going to have to present zoning. So even if you have a little building that's 6,000 square feet and you choose to do an addition on the ground floor to add an apartment, it will trigger that the DOB will want to see a zoning study to see, are you covering too much of the land? Are you setting, are you having enough space in the rear? Uh, You know, a lot of 
small time developers learn because they go into a neighborhood and they learn, oh, I have to be 30 feet in the back and I can't go over four stories. And so they, they think that that's zoning and they just go and, and propagate this down the block or in their neighborhood. But you cross a zoning line and that, that dimension can change and every district has its own rules. So it's important that even at a, at a small, you know, three month construction process that has very little risk and you're going to spend very little money just by extending a building or increasing a floor you 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 have to present zoning to the city so so far you've talked about the planning department writing the code the department of buildings enforcing the code what other agencies are involved in this process well if you're just developing it in an as of right way then we're talking about the Department of Buildings, right? You just design your building according to zoning and building code, and then you go to the DOB and you you, you pull a permit. May I, may I clarify something? Sure. If you are altering a building or you're constructing a new building, they will not review your zoning unless it's attached to some sort of application. So typically that, at the very minimum, is a foundation application. And a foundation application has to go through DEP because you're connecting to the sewer for a new building. And the DEP is? Demo- Department of Environmental Protection. Uh, to get a zoning approval, you can't get a zoning approval on its own. It's not a freestanding approval. You typically have to tie it to a new building application. And at the very minimum, you have to tie it, you know, attach it to foundation. So you're going to at least go through DOB and you're going to go through the DEP. And then if it's not as of right, you may be dealing with community boards. Right. If you don't want to develop the building on an as of right way, you might ask yourself, well, how can I increase the development potential here in a non-as of right way? And, and we get clients that, that, that call us with that and say, I'm looking at a property or I have a property that I'd like to build either bigger or build in a different way or have a different use that wouldn't otherwise be permitted. And so we need to analyze that from from a from perspective of, what can, you know? What approvals are available to us? Because you can only work within the framework that the city gives you, right? You cannot make up. Uh, we'll get clients to say, "Oh, I, I want a waiver for for height over here," and it doesn't just. You can't just pick waivers up off the shelf, right? There has to be a mechanism that we apply to a specific site in order to get a, a, a specific approval. So, give me an example of one. Either one of you, give me an example of one where someone didn't want to build as of right. They did want to improve it beyond what the existing zoning was, and some of the things that they had to do in exchange for that to happen. I'm working on a number of rezonings now uh, throughout the five boroughs, and what a rezoning is is, is is a property owner applying to the city and saying, "I have an existing zoning district. I don't want to build in an as of right way, and what I'd like to do." is have my property rezoned, have the zoning changed so that I can build bigger and in a different way. And so that is a discretionary process that is not as of right. It's part of the Euler process, which is the Uniform Land Use Review Procedure. It is a, uh, a legislated, timed process and that involves working with the community board, with local elected officials, and with the city council, ultimately. It is a lengthy process, and it, it is really a two-pronged process. It, it, it involves a planning rationale. There needs to be a reason to do this. And the reason can't be I, private property owner, want to make more money. That's not sufficient. (laughs) Uh, So there needs to be a planning rationale and there needs to be political will to make it happen because ultimately it is a political process. And so 
you can have the, the strongest planning rationale in the world, but if the community and the local council member is not supportive, then you're going to have a very tough time, I would say impossible time, getting some kind of uh, discretionary action like a rezoning approved. And then can Landmark play into this as well? Absolutely. So New York City has two types of, uh, really three types of designations, but we'll focus on two of them. One is historic districts, which are any number of buildings or blocks in an area that, that have are part of a historic district. And then there's individually designated landmarks. Either way, whether you're in a district or if you're an individual landmark, if you want to make any changes to the external facade of the building, you need to go to the Landmarks Preservation Commission and get their approval. Now, depending on what you're proposing, the approval could be relatively straightforward uh, and easy. Or if you're uh, proposing a demolition, that can be very problematic. Or if you're proposing an an enlargement or an extension or some kind of uh, change to the facade, it it will go before the Landmarks Commission and they will hold public hearings and then you will have to present and again, make a case there. And the political aspect of that also should not be overlooked. So when you say political aspect of that, what, what plays into that? Real estate development, as we all know, is extraordinarily political. New York City, one of its biggest industries is real estate. It's a very important tax base for the city. And so the politics of real estate uh, should not be uh, underestimated. And uh, when you go through any kind of public approval process, the local elected official has a lot of say. In fact, it's one of the the biggest areas of power that a local council member uh, will have is in the land use process. And it gives them an opportunity to weigh in and listen to their constituents, listen to local community groups, including but not limited to the community board, and weigh in. And so when we have clients, we guide them through the public review process. What we'll do is we'll create that planning rationale for them, uh, work with the Department of City Planning on what makes sense from a planning perspective. But from day one, we will begin a plan for uh, obtaining political support. And that means speaking to uh, the borough president, speaking to the local council member, understanding what their needs are, working with them, having them buy into the, to, to the concept of the project from the beginning. Because we don't want to be in a position where we get through the process and get to the end of the process and have them vote us down. And there should almost never be a, a no vote from a local council member. You shouldn't be surprised by a vote. You, what you will want to have done is done your homework, understand what their concerns are. It doesn't mean that every project gets approved. It just means that you will want to make those a, adjustments to the project earlier in the process as opposed to later in the process. Uh, and so you work with the, the local uh, officials, uh, the local community. Uh, sometimes there will be a, a local advocacy group that's in addition to the to the community boards, so you'll work with them. Maybe it'll be a neighborhood group, a block association, whatever it is. You want to understand who are the players, uh, you know, relevant to your project, and you want to work with them and have buy-in from the beginning. It's not always possible, but you do the best you can in planning school. Oftentimes, that the concept of the developer is seen as this evil entity, and it's seen as this really paradigm of the developer versus the community. And I'm trying my entire professional career to kind of break that down. I I have this concept that developer is not a four-letter word. It doesn't have to be the big bad developer versus the the little innocent powerless community. Uh, You know, neighborhoods change. They always have and they always will. And the question is, how do they change? And 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 during that change, who benefits from that change? And when we pit, uh, you know, the, the communities versus the developers, I think everyone everyone really loses. What I've been trying to do is, is kind of foster 
whenever we work with communities and developers, trying to foster an understanding between the two parties to say, if we work together, we can end up with a better development for everyone involved. Too often, there's a history of mistrust uh, between developers and communities, and, and a lot of it is justified uh, in both directions. But I, I think uh, we, uh, as professionals, can do a better job of bringing those sides together. It doesn't have to be this binary uh, situation where it's uh, one versus one. It's a. It's also every project is a negotiation, especially if you're going as of right. There's no negotiation. You just do what you're told by the zone. You know by the zoning resolution. If you're going through a Euler process and you're asking for special consideration, it starts as a negotiation. And and basically, you could say, well, okay, so I'm zoned for ten stories and X amount of square feet. I would like to build more. I would like to build perhaps fifteen stories or twenty stories. But in exchange for that they're going to ask you for something. They're going to say, well, maybe 50% of, of your housing is is low-income housing or medium-income housing. Maybe uh, we have a public plaza on the ground floor that's, that's a privately owned public space in exchange because we could really use that. And so developers can use this. They can say, well, what if we do a YMCA and a gym here? Well, that'll help the community. It'll make the neighborhood a better place. We'll put a supermarket in there as well. And you will be zoned in the future CFO to say, this is going to be you know, a specific zoning use, whether it's daycare or a green supermarket. And that will perhaps allow an exchange for more development rights, more, a couple more stories or a couple more units. That's how you negotiate to allow the city to grant you special consideration in exchange for giving something back to the community. And that's the balance you find through the process. That's really great. And we've been talking a lot about development. Alex, a lot what about existing buildings where there's where it's not going to be torn down, uh, it's not going to be primarily renovated? You know, somebody has a multifamily building or a multifamily mixed use or even an office building, and they've owned it for a really long time, and they want to figure out, you know, what is it that I can do with this to actually maximize its value before I sell it or while I own it so that I can increase revenue? That's, that's perhaps the most common question I get as an architect from building owners. Right now, I, I must have at least three or four, three, four-story buildings that are apartment buildings that were inherited by someone. They want to know if they can add a floor, if they can make an extension or put a base uh, apartment in the basement just to improve you know, the, the operating income. So I, I was actually in Brooklyn uh, last week on Friday, and I was viewing some properties in uh, Bed-Stuy. Bedford-Stuyvesant. And what I noticed is there were a lot of three and four-story buildings that were being turned into five and six-story buildings. Right. And when you looked at the FAR, the floor area ratio for the existing buildings that weren't being improved yet, it showed that they were underbuilt, that, yes. that technically you could you know, add a, a level or a second level so how does how does someone find out uh, what they can do, and is it an as-of-right way to build, or do you have to do something different? I mean, you said that even an as-of-right, uh, you have to go before the Department of Buildings and ask for approval because you're making this alteration. Well, so so I would say the answer to your question is they should call me, right? And I would <laughs> tell them. But uh, what typically is done is you do a preliminary zoning analysis. You take the building— you 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 interpret what's been built in terms of square footage, which is listed 
you know, but but it's nice to do a little model so you understand how it's distributed on the lot, the height, the bulk. And um, you interpret the zoning as if you were building something new today to see what your maximum height would be, your bulk, your growth. And you compare the two. And by comparing the two, you can easily see how you would grow. And sometimes it's very straightforward. Oh, you add a floor and you add 10 feet to the back. Sometimes it's not so straightforward because you might not be able to physically do what the zoning tells you you can't. Every case is a one-off consideration, but the best thing to do is do a preliminary zoning study. Well, what does a preliminary zoning study cost an owner? What would they pay for something like that? It depends on the extent of the study. So let me give you an example. If someone has a four-story house in Brooklyn and it's an R6, and I know that by memory, I can pretty much look at it and just tell them what they need without doing much of an analysis. And if I were to do something, you know, it, it would be the hours that, that I would be involved in presenting something and putting it on paper, should they need it to show to a third party beyond just a verbal description. But sometimes I have people in very, very complicated zoning districts that want to do very complicated things. Like, for example, sell the development rights to their neighbor and in exchange build in a district that has many layers, like the Hudson Yards that has, you know, many, many, many layers of, and the brokers are all scratching their heads because they can't answer the question, what can be built? And then they come to me and I do a, a lengthy analysis that takes many hours because ultimately it's a very complicated zoning district. Not to toot my own horn, but I've written software that allows me to analyze quickly, saves me a lot of time, and um, and great, does great presentations. But a complicated 30-story building in the Hudson Yards is going to take many more hours and could be you know, somewhere around the, the, the realm of five to six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 in terms of man hours to, to produce. Now, for the value of a potential 100,000 square foot building in the Hudson Yards, it's, it's peanuts, but um, it's, it's what's required to understand what you can build. So even after you have that study, you still have to get it approved. Correct. Right. To touch on the cost for preliminary zoning analysis, you, you got exactly where I was headed, Alex, which is whatever the cost is, whatever the cost is, it is a bargain because the work that we do can be very valuable. It can do two things. It can unlock a huge amount of value, development rights, the ability to, to develop in a way that, that wasn't or enlarged or convert uh, in a way that hadn't been previously considered. Or, and this might be even more, more important and more valuable, is giving someone advice that says you actually cannot do what you thought you were going to do. Uh, helping people prevent, you know, preventing people from making mistakes, making investment mistakes, or beginning a project that ultimately doesn't end up that they wanted to, the, the way that they expected it to go is is very valuable. And so whatever the cost of the zoning analysis is, it's a bargain for twice the price. Uh, absolutely. I mean, just give you an example. We had a owner of a property in the Hudson Yards who had an architect from out of town. And I see this a lot. People who don't have New York City experience did a preliminary zoning analysis and told him he could build 75,000 square feet. Now, that particular garment area regulation is very restrictive to changes of use. And if you have commercial or if you have manufacturing, um, you can't just change it to residential easily. So digging deeper into the zoning, um, we were doing an analysis to see if we would joint venture with this person and actually build the building. So it was, it was worth my time to, to invest in analyzing this. And uh, we came back and discovered that 
they could not build 75,000 square feet of residential. They could only build 50,000 square feet of residential. That's a 25,000 square foot difference. Now, the current price of development rights in, in that neighborhood are about 650 square feet. Now, if you just do the math with 500, which is cheap, but let's say 500, that's a, that's a $12.5 million difference in terms of the sale price of the vacant land because of its development rights. That's without even saying what that land would cost if it was actually built and you were purchasing, you know, condos in the end um, or, or rental apartments. So, so it's a very key part of the development procedure is knowing exactly what you can build even before you purchase the land. And brokers typically can't provide this service. And many architects don't know enough zoning, you know, to, to actually be able to help this. So, you know, land use counsel is, is key or an architect who really knows his zoning. The other point that I, I would make about uh, existing buildings is that sometimes, perhaps most times, an existing building can be a much more complicated project than a vacant piece of property, right? When you have a vacant piece of property, it's relatively straightforward. You follow the code and you build uh, what you want to build. But when you have an existing building, if you're looking to enlarge it or uh, convert the use, it can be really complicated for a number of reasons. One, Alex, you mentioned earlier, even if zoning allows you to enlarge it, your existing structure may not be able to accommodate floor or two floors or three floors, just given that it might be 100 years old and may not be able to physically hold the, the enlargement. The other issue is that you might find yourself, uh, uh, Bill, you're talking about being in Bed-Stuy. Significant portions of, uh, or portions of Bed-Stuy are, are in historic district. And so you may have a, a three or a four-story walk-up and then you want to add a floor or two. That has to get approved at the Landmarks Commission. That can be problematic. Uh, oftentimes the Landmarks Commission will allow enlargements of buildings, but only if that enlargement can't be seen from the street, which means there has to be a, a trade-off there between design and, and value. And then if we're talking about conversions of existing buildings, there's always issues of habitability. If we're taking an old warehouse or an old commercial uh, building that was used for commercial uses and you want to convert it to uh, a residential use, I always have to worry about light and air. How am I getting legal windows to all the, the habitable spaces? Do I have the proper means of egress? All of that can be a lot more challenging on an existing building because you're not getting to design it from scratch. And the other issue with existing buildings is they may have been built prior to the, to the current zoning. And so they may be overbuilt or built with a non-conforming use. So the zoning regulations associated with uh, you know, non-complying buildings and non-conforming uses need to be followed very closely because oftentimes, generally, what the rule is, you, can, you may be able to continue the non-conforming use or uh, the, the non-complying bulk that's there if it's uh, taller than would be allowed today. But anything new has to comply with the existing regulations. And so that can sometimes be in conflict as well. And that needs to be balanced. Again, design versus value. To add to that, you know, what, what Eldad's saying is key. Alteration type ones, which are typically changes of, of use of an existing building or, you know, anything that affects the CFO of a existing building, it triggers... What's, what's the CFO? The Certificate of Occupancy uh, clearly describes the use per floor or the use of the areas in the building. It will say you're allowed to have a hotel or you're allowed to have a outpatient medical center. You're allowed to have residences. There's four residences or there's 25 residences. Um, it, it, the CFO is the building department's way of registering 
the legal use of the building. And typically it's the last certificate or the last um, document that's issued once a building has been approved, it's been built, it's been inspected, and it's ready for use. The certificate of occupancy is issued to say this building is is conforming to all the code and to to the zoning and, and, and to everything. So what am I getting at? When you alter a certificate of occupancy because you are changing the use, if your building is non-conforming, like Eldad's saying, so let me give you a concrete example. Warehouse in the Bronx. It's a factory. It's been a factory since 1920-something. It was used for armament. They would make arms for, for the war during the 40s. Very cut and dry factory use. Today, Bronx is changing. You have someone who wants to use it as an office space. So they're renovating the top floor as an office. Office has different use of a factory. Um, one is an industrial use per zoning and the other one is, is uh, commercial. So f- there's zoning use, which dictates what you can do now. And what nonconformant means is that today you would only be allowed to do residences and commercial. But before there was a f- there was manufacturing, there was a factory there. The factory still exists because it was granted back then. So if I start changing the factory to make it offices, if I change too much of it, it becomes an office. They want you today to meet the office code requirement of 2018 where we are today. That means you might have to sprinkler the building. You might have to insulate it. You might have to do many things to bring it up to code. And you may not be able to use it as a factory anymore. Absolutely. You would be changing the use. So so you couldn't necessarily have offices on the top and manufacturing below. Well, so we, in this case case that I'm giving you in a building that, that we just finalized, um, we did, but we put in new stairs that are fire rated and they keep keep the, the occupancy from above without touching the below. And there's egress, fire egress from the top straight out to, to the sidewalk. And so presenting that to the building department as a change of use and change of, of occupancy is sometimes even more complex than the zoning. The zoning was very straightforward. The zoning is grandfathered in and the new use complies, no problem. So the, the trick there is the occupancy per the building code, not the zoning occupancy. They're two separate things. Sometimes they play well together. Sometimes uh, they they can cause trouble on a project. And then there's also occupancy, current occupancy of, say, a multifamily building that is administrated by current rent regulation rules. And that can come into play too. HDP can be involved, yeah. So when you... um, when the two of you are involved in a project in, say, a multifamily building that is going to be improved or enlarged and it has rent-regulated and it has rent-regulated tenants in it, rent-stabilized or rent-controlled, do you, do you get involved in that part of it? So we get involved in th- those kinds of issues uh, to an extent. I- I'm not a uh, rent regulation expert, but uh, right now I'm working on an assemblage here in Manhattan where the client is looking to, uh, they have a development site, they're looking to acquire additional development rights. So what some of the other additional parcels on the zoning lot that they're trying to assemble 
has existing buildings with either rent control or rent stabilized apartments in it. And so that's critical, right? That there are are, uh, very strong anti-harassment laws in place, which absolutely should be adhered to. If, If that existing building if it can be vacated legally and appropriately, then it becomes part of the part of the the footprint of a potential building. But if it cannot, then 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 there's the possibility of tra- transferring the development rights from such a building to a neighbor or enlarging the the uh, zoning lot in order to increase the development potential of a development site. So are uh, development rights the same as air rights, or are they two different things? May I, may I say this? I want to say this. Air rights are a misnomer. Whoever says air right is using the term incorrectly. Air rights do not exist. Yeah, but everyone likes to talk about selling air in New York City, the yes. place where you can sell air. You cannot sell air. Uh, no. But you can sell development rights. Correct. You can sell the FAR. Are air rights just an alternate name for development rights, which is technically what they really are? Yeah. So let me give you a very simple example of how this works. You know, you have two buildings next to each other. Let's say they're both, again, our 10,000 square foot example. Uh, they both have FAR of 10, so they can both build 100,000 square feet. They could go up, build 100,000 square feet. One neighbor says, you know what, I'll, I will sell you my development rights. And he sells to him the 90,000 extra square feet that, that he would build. So what they would do then is in, in the deed, um, they would transfer those rights over. And so by having a contiguous zoning lot, basically showing it as as a merger of the two, you now have a new zoning lot in which one building could be two hundred thousand, and it just it turns out that you know you're going to make a shape of one hundred ninety thousand and another shape of I should say form of of ten thousand square feet, and that way you're you're complying. Now that's an easy dumbed down way of saying it. Sometimes you can't build, you know, all in one half of the lot all the way up because it just doesn't work that way. And so there's cases where people cantilever over over other buildings and they do many things to get the the space, the area allotted in the envelope in the bulk that that's allowed. So that lot that's selling the development rights could theoretically sell some of the development rights to one neighbor and some of the development rights to another neighbor. And I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're selling development rights, there's a certain envelope that you have to be in in order to sell those rights. You can't sell them to somebody three blocks away. So there are some very unique exceptions where someone could sell it to someone a block away. There are always exceptions. Yes, yes. Well, a a landmark church will never want to build, Trinity Church will never want to build a skyscraper on top of itself. Those rights, I'm sure they're sold already and they've been built, but um, those rights in many cases could be transferred to someone um, uh, across the block. But typically the, the rule of thumb as of right is uh, a contiguous um, neighbor, whether it's next door, behind the lot. and yeah. So so uh, that's exactly right. You, ha- you have to be uh, contiguous for... Uh, t- a minimum of 10 feet in order to have a, a, a transfer of development rights. And Alex, you said that, that magic phrase again, as of right. Uh, it's incredibly important to realize that the transfer of development rights is an as of right way of doing development. And when you look at what they're calling Billionaire's Row on 57th Street, so many of those massive towers are being developed in an as-of-right way. And, you know, a lot of community groups and, and, and organizations throughout the city are saying, how are we allowing this to happen? And the truth is, 
those projects are not getting some kind of discretionary approval. What they're doing is they're amassing development rights from uh, the block in general. And you say, you, you, if you buy the development rights from your neighbor, what you've done now is you've increased your zoning lot. We, we, we know there's tax lots. That's the, the lot that your building is on and that you pay taxes on and the city records. This is your tax lot. That, that's what you own. But when you buy development rights, you're telling the city, please consider me and my neighbor together as one zoning lot and do the zoning calculations over both of our lots. And that's what Alex was getting at with 100,000 square feet here, 100,000 square feet here. But together, the city looks at it and says, there's a larger zoning lot here that can do 200,000 square feet. And so when you enlarge your zoning lot, you're doing two things. You're giving yourself the opportunity to transfer the development rights from your neighbor, but then you're also giving yourself the opportunity to further enlarge your, your, your zoning lot because all of a sudden you become contiguous to the next lot and the next lot and the next lot. And so, so many of these uh, super tall uh, developments, uh, what they've done is they, they just start going down the block and taking development rights off of the underbuilt buildings and stacking them on top of the development site. In Midtown, in certain zonings in zoning districts in Midtown, there really isn't a maximum height limit, which is why you can just keep adding development rights, build extraordinarily tall without getting any kind of discretionary approval. And that, that's why the transfer of development rights really can get under the skin of, of, uh, of preservation uh, groups. But it, it is uh, an extraordinarily effective way of doing as-of-right development and enlarging your development potential. And also to add to this, um, 59th Street, Central Park South, was capped in height to protect views of the park. And so all those buildings the Essex House and everything that's, you know, uh, the, the, the Plaza Hotel, all those buildings along 59th Street are capped in height, but they aren't capped necessarily in, in their FAR. So they could, and what's happened is that FAR has transferred back to the back of, of the block and the streets behind. And 57th Street happens to not have any cap on its height because it's not considered to obstruct views of Central Park, as silly as that sounds, it's two blocks away. So they have done, you know, what, what 59th Street would have done if they would have been allowed, and they've gone up as high as possible. That's, that's the effect. So when you suppress zoning, when the community gets together somehow and caps a zoning on this building because they don't want it to go higher, you know, what, what, what can happen is the unbuilt FAR, unless it's changed, if it's just a cap on the height, it can be transferred to the guy behind him and he'll go up. And so I think it's important to note that 57th Street is the result of uh, the, the policy in place at, on 59th Street. So let's talk about Midtown. There was a re major rezoning in Midtown. Please tell me exactly when that happened, why it happened. At the end of last year and into the beginning of this year, there, there was a, uh, a rezoning. There is in, in existence a special Midtown district, which has a, a whole host of sub-districts within it. And one of the subdistricts was rewritten to be the East Midtown subdistrict. The, the concept behind it is to encourage development on, you know, it, there, there aren't a lot of vacant lots in East Midtown, obviously, but it, the, the, the idea is to redevelop some of the lower rise office, office buildings and office towers in East Midtown uh, to allow them to increase to significant densities that really is befitting of, of East Midtown and in doing so, capture some of that value for uh, the city, for the community, and redistribute it into uh, what they're calling public realm improvements. 
which means uh, infrastructure and the, the sub subway improvements. Um, and so the transfer of development rights uh, from landmarks was 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 a uh, historic uh, legal case that, that said, if you landmark us, I won't be able to use my development rights. And so, so uh, the city says, well, you can, tra you, can, you can transfer them across the street in a way that, that uh, other sites wouldn't be allowed to. But uh, certain special districts within New York City allow uh, an even loosening, a greater loosening of those rules and so uh, Grand Central has that. Grand Central has uh, the freedom to, within a, a larger area, to transfer its development rights. And, and the theater district to the west as well. And there's, there's many areas in Midtown that are, are allowed to do so. That's right. They did the same thing with, with the High Line, right? They took the value of the properties underneath the High Line and without destroying the High Line, gave those properties value to, in order to transfer the development rights in a way that they wouldn't have been uh, permitted to otherwise. Uh, you know, the, the city is, is looking at ways to... Uh, loosen some of the, the restrictions on the transfer of development rights without upsetting. You know, th th there's a there's there's a there's a political balance here uh, that that has to be taken into account. Um, although, if you ask me, Midtown is the absolute right place to increase density and to allow height. Uh, you know, any concerns about uh, height? It's Midtown. I mean, let let there be height. I, I think the city. You know, the city goes through different political phases over over the decades, and but I think one thing it's safe to say it could be consistent is incentivize development on behalf of the city. They realized that people are going to build. It's, it's New York. People are going to build. It's the nature of, of cities. They're always changing. They're always growing. But they can curtail development in the right direction for betterment of the city by incentivizing certain things. So there's many things in, in, in zoning that says, oh, if you put a community center here, something that improves the surrounding neighborhood, we'll let you build a little bit more. Or you put in you know, social housing, low-income housing, we'll let you build a little bit more. There'll be a bonus for you. Oh, you, you give a public plaza to, to people who anyone can come in and, and, and use this public plaza and you maintain it, well, we'll give you a little bonus. So they have these incentivized bonuses to try to steer development in the right direction. And so when you're going against the grain, when a developer goes and puts a, you know, I've seen people that are going into a landmark commercial district, you know, like Soho, and they want to put a new residential building. It's not to say you won't achieve it, but you're going against the, the intention of the way it's zoned. You're, you're going to have a battle to get what you want, and you're going to have to make some compromise before you get there. Whereas in a place like Midtown, you know, if if you have uh, a lot and you know that you have a, a certain zoning, you pretty much know that you can build a high rise without too much city opposition. It's also good to understand the big picture of the zoning maps to understand how the city is using them to incentivize growth where they want it and restrict growth where they they don't want it. Just to add add to that, in in East Midtown, part of the 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 new regulations allows not just Grand Central but additional de you know individually designated designated landmarks to unlock some of the value of the development rights above above their property and transfer them to a larger area. Uh, there's a process, so the city can get involved, and it's not it's not just an as of right process. So the city gets a say. But the, the landmarks, these are churches and institutions within uh, the, the certain sub-district, the East Midtown sub-district, that, that can unlock the value of their properties and the city can benefit from enlarged or, or, or redeveloped uh, commercial buildings in, in East Midtown where that kind of development is appropriate. So uh, ideally, it's, it's a win-win for, for everyone involved. All right, so far, that's fantastic. So we've talked about as of right, which is based on the existing zoning code, and there you go to the DOB. Then we have change of zoning, which is ULERP, 
uniform land use review procedure. And with that, sometimes you're involved with the community boards and it can get political. Correct. And then there's also something called the Board of Standards and Appeals. Yes. So the, the Board of Standards and Appeals, the, the, the BSA, is the public entity that you turn to when you want to get a variant. A lot of people confuse rezonings and variances, and for good reason. Uh, it, it can be uh, highly technical, and, and at the end of the day, it may not matter all that much as the end result, because what a variance does is it allows you to do something different that's at variance with the existing zoning. And that could be a different use or a different zoning envelope or to be able to build bigger. But the mechanism is completely different. And it's important to understand the difference and how you get to one versus the other and why you would get one versus the other. And would there be a combination of all of these sometimes? It's unlikely that you would get a rezoning and a variance because one would solve the need for the other. Although, uh, when you're dealing with the transfer of development rights, you can certainly, obviously, like we said, the transfer of development rights is an as-of-right uh, process, and there is no discretionary approval for that. But uh, the, the transfer of development rights can absolutely be part of a, a ULERP process, a rezoning, uh, and they can also be part of a variance application. But when you're looking at, at a property, you say, this is what I can build as-of-right. And so you might do a zoning analysis and model it and say, this doesn't work for me for any number of reasons. And then you might say to yourself, or someone will come to us and say, well, what can I do with the property that's not as of right? And so one option is to go through a ULERP uh, process, the rezoning process. And, and that, again, takes uh, a planning rationale and political will. But another approach is to go to the BSA, the Board of Standards and Appeals, and apply for a variance. And what a variance is, is you're essentially throwing yourself at the mercy of the Board of Standards and Appeals and saying, listen, the zoning that's here in the neighborhood makes sense, but for me specifically, it causes a hardship. Uh, you have to prove two, two main points need to be proven in order to get a variance. And that is one, that there is a unique physical condition to your site that's unique to you that prevents you from being able to develop in an as-of-right way. And then you need to link that to some sort of financial hardship that is caused by this unique physical condition. And so you have to say, look, I'm unique. There's something unique physically about my site. And so that could be any number of things, but oftentimes it's an odd-shaped lot, right? In New York City, uh, we're generally a grid, but not always. And so sometimes you'll have a street crossing uh, at an angle, and that creates uh, tax lots that are, you know, not perfect rectangles. They they can be pie shaped, or they can they, they can be sometimes a, a curved street will create sort of a crescent uh, shape on a lot. And so, developing that can be extraordinarily expensive, and the the zoning won't allow you to develop in a way that c gives you what the Board of Standards and Appeals calls a reasonable return. So you have to prove that there's a unique physical condition that that's causing you. A financial hardship that you can't make a reasonable return, but for a variance that will give you some sort of relief from the zoning. And that's what a variance is. It, it pr provides relief from the zoning. So the zoning, if you get a variance, your zoning designation will not change. When you look at the zoning map of the city of New York, it'll still say whatever the zoning was before, but you'll be able to do something with your property, either build bigger or have a different use or build in, a, in some sort of form or shape that, that's different than would otherwise be permitted. It'll be different than what is permitted generally in that zoning district and what your neighbor, different from what your neighbors are allowed to do. So you're creating a non-conforming use artificially by getting a variance. And would you ever try to get a variance on an existing use that's non-conforming to make it permanent? 
it depends. If the if you have a, a, a non-conforming use and it is legal, it's grandfathered, th- then you wouldn't get a variance because you have that that ability to to maintain and continue that use. But sometimes you can try and go back and legalize something that isn't otherwise permitted. Uh, it's a little bit of a harder case to make, but with the right extenuating circumstances, and it depends also uh, who is applying. Oftentimes, if there's a nonprofit or or, or, or a religious or an educational institution applying, the standard, uh, the test is is, is significantly uh, lowered in that they don't need to meet that financial hardship, but there needs to be maybe a, a programmatic need for why you're asking for a variance. And once you get the variance, is it permanent with the property forever? You could sell it with that variance? Exactly. You get a variance, you have to build according to the approval, and then it's noted on the certificate of occupancy that you have this variance and it stays with that property forever. I, I can give you an example. I worked on a project in Queens for actually for, for a house of worship. It was it was a synagogue that, that was downsizing. They had uh, they had their, their synagogue that was large and uh, their, their congregation uh, had diminished in size over a period of time, several decades, and they wanted to monetize their space uh, so that they can create an endowment for themselves to go forward, but they didn't want to be in that large space anymore. And so they, they identified a building, an existing building in the neighborhood, just a few blocks from, from, from their current facility. But in order to move there, certain zoning regulations were were preventing them from moving there in an as-of-right way. They would have to provide a yard and it would have to chop off some of the existing building. It just didn't make a lot of sense. And so that, it was a kind of a perfect example of why a variance, the, the variance process exists. A rezoning wouldn't have made sense for that property. The, the, the zoning there was fine. It's just that the existing structure and the conversion of use from, because the existing structure actually used to be a residential building, but they converted it to this synagogue, to this house of worship. But the house of worship had different yard requirements than than uh, the residential building did. And so what they needed was just a little bit of relief from the city. And that's exactly what the variance process does. And so we were able to take them through that process successfully. They, they moved in, they had their synagogue is up and running successfully. And I think I mentioned earlier that, that we need to have the tools in order to help developers and and property owners and houses of worship and, and institutions and any property owner in order to get to a place where the development makes sense for them. And so in this case, the variance process was exactly that. It was a tool to get us to where the synagogue can occupy a space that was right for them in a way that was logical. They just needed a little bit of relief and we were able to, to help them get that. Oftentimes we will get clients that say to me, I want to do something that's not as of right. Uh, I want to get a variance or I want to get a rezoning, but we have to go through that process uh, of really assessing what makes the most sense here, uh, given the tools that are at our disposal. Spectacular. Absolutely spectacular, guys. Thank you so much. You know, we're running out of time here. I know we've covered a lot of ground today. I think our listeners are very excited about what they heard. They may have some other questions that we didn't answer today. Is there a way that our listeners can get in touch with you? I mean, I, I can put in the show notes, you know, your website, your email address. So, Alex, if they wanted to get in touch with you, how would they get in touch with you? Through your website? Yes, absolutely. That's at curvearchitecture.com, and that's spelled uh, with a K, uh, U as an umbrella, R as in Robert, and V as in Victor. Architecture.com. Architecture.com. Right, great. And Eldad? Yeah, so I'd be happy. You know, we field calls all the time. I'm looking at a building. I'm looking at it. I have a building. I want to buy a site. We field calls, and, and, and really... Uh, the, the initial conversations are just an exchange of ideas. What are you thinking? What are you looking at? I'd be happy to 
to speak to anyone who has any questions or thoughts on zoning, land use, development in New York City, uh, I can be reached uh, if you go to uh, uh, herrick.com, uh, H-E-R-R-I-C-K. Email me, call me, all the contact information is there. Happy to talk to anyone about properties. I think it comes across that uh, Alex and I uh, really care about uh, zoning and land use and development in New York City. We have a good handle on, on these subjects and, and are happy to help people uh, kind of get to where they need to get to. Fantastic guests today, experts at what it is that they do, land use, architecture. These are the guys to get in touch with. They've worked together before. So what one might need the other to help them with, they're always there. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Bill. Thanks for having us, Bill. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Don't want to miss an episode? Then subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music. Or just search for Realty Speak on your device's podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices or Overcast on Apple devices. And now Realty Speak is also on Spotify. To share with others, just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, you and I can connect to chat about your plans with your real estate investments, whether to buy, sell, or just chat about strategies on what you currently own. The website is billwidener.com, and all my information is there. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us but about how we help you make the bottom line rise.